So being that it's Palm Sunday and that Justin actually spoke about that this morning, spoke about the king of peace entering into Jerusalem. Before the king, though, brought peace to us in the way in which we now rejoice in it, he first had to endure the cross. And so today, in preparation for Resurrection Day next week, I want to preach to you a message that is of first importance, and I think it's worth repeating. And that message is found in the Gospel of Isaiah, the Gospel according to Isaiah. So please open God's Word with me there to Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, and don't panic. I'm not going to exegete every word in these two chapters. That would be impossible for me. But we are going to look at a large portion of both and be, I think, amazed by it. Because here in 52, the latter half of 52 and 53, we find three truths that are critically important to our faith and our understanding of the gospel itself. And these three truths are actually too good not to be true. The first thing we see here, I'll give you an outline so it's easier to follow maybe, because I'm not going to read the entirety of the text. I'm going to walk through it with you. But number one, Isaiah reveals to us the truth about God's unbelievable act of humiliation in chapter 52, 13 to 53, 3. God's unbelievable act of humiliation. Then Isaiah reveals the truth to us about God's unequaled act of compassion, his unequaled act of compassion in in verse 4 of chapter 53 to verse 9. And then lastly, Isaiah reveals to us the truth about God's unquestionable act of satisfaction in verses 10 through 12, his unquestionable act of satisfaction, namely in Christ, in verses 10 through 12. Isaiah's prophecy here is really, it's important, it's, it's critical, again, like I said, to our faith and our understanding of the gospel. Um, but it is a prophecy. And we have to keep in mind that it's a prophecy that was given over 700 years before Jesus was even born, okay, before he entered into this world. It was also a prophecy that was given before the Romans created something called crucifixion. What's amazing about both of these are these speak and these verses speak directly to Christ, who he is and what he did, including the crucifixion itself, even before all these things had even taken place 700 years beforehand. It's an amazing prophecy in that regard. But what's more amazing about it is in this incredible prophecy, we find the good news of the gospel. We have the good news of God, the father's suffering servant that was sent to save us, and how he brought peace to us. We have God, the the Father's suffering servant, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who happens to be also God the Son, coming into the world to accomplish the task of redemption, spoken of by Isaiah 700 plus years before Jesus' earthly birth. This prophecy reveals some really, again, incredible things to us. It reveals God's good news, God's gospel, And just think about it. In just this one chapter, chapter 53 itself, right? In chapter 53, Isaiah takes us from Jesus' humiliation at his incarnation to the crucifixion and then to the resurrection. It's all in chapter 53 of Isaiah. This chapter excites me. So um, please forgive me if, if I don't 
remain quiet and calm during this message. This is an exciting chapter, and, and it, it points out the greatness of our Savior and the great love of our Father. Now, let's, let's get into it. Let's get into it in 52, 13 to 53, 3, because here's what's going to happen. Isaiah's gospel message here is going to begin by revealing the truth about God the Son's unbelievable humiliation. It's going to be via incarnation, okay? God the Son's unbelievable humiliation is revealed here in 52, 13 to 53, 3. Let me read that to you. Beginning in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, speaking of Jesus, the suffering servant. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle, hmm, better word, startle, astonish, shock many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord, the power of God, been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, considered vile to us, and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. We esteemed him not. Here, Isaiah begins there in uh, verse 13, and he tells us that God is revealing the good news to us about God the Son's incarnation through this humbling one who would come and stand in our place. And, and then this chapter 52 into 53 then reveals mankind's response to this message, this report from God through the prophet Isaiah, that God the Son is coming and he's coming to be your suffering Savior. There should have been rejoicing in chapter 53 verse 1. Who has believed this report? We have, right? That's what you would hope for. That's not what we see. We see the reaction of mankind in what follows in chapter 53. Notice in 14 and 15 of chapter 52, again, that he says this is a startling message. A startling message. It's an astonishing, humanly unbelievable message that God would work like this. It startles these people. Think about it, how it startled you when you first heard it. It startles the wisdom of men. Yet at the same time, it has the power to open blind eyes and cleanse the sinner's heart. This message or this report is both shocking and cleansing. It cleanses sinners. And, and it reveals to us who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. And he's going to be both, as it says there at the beginning of 52.13, he's going to be both supremely exalted and then in 53 he's going to be supremely degraded. He does that in order to become our substitute and our savior to cover our sins through the shedding of his own blood. But through the shedding of his own blood, we'll see at the end of chapter 53, he will then be exalted 
to God's right hand as the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Though he comes in humility, shockingly in humility. Now what's, what's interesting to me is we know this story well because we know our New Testaments well. And in the New Testament, we see Isaiah's very prophecy here, this prophetic message coming to pass. And we celebrate this every Christmas, right? It, we, we celebrate the fact that Jesus, God, the son comes. But how did he come? He comes not wrapped in kingly garb. He comes wrapped in human flesh and lying in a manger. When he came there, there was no celebration at the birth of Jesus. The nations didn't come and gather around and rejoice no, they didn't. Not even Israel did. There was no pomp and circumstance. There were no kingly robes to wrap him in. There was nothing like that whatsoever. Instead, what did he do? He came clothed, not in glory, but in humility. That's what Isaiah is prophesying here. And why did he come in humility? Well, he came for a specific purpose, to suffer for the many. He came to be our substitute. He came to take our place. He came to bring us something we can't earn or don't deserve. That is his righteousness, God's righteousness that would be imputed, credited to our account. He came, though, to give it to us by first taking our place and receiving our penalty at the cross and living the life that we could never live throughout his time on earth. But to do that, he had to suffer. And that's what Isaiah is referring to here in this chapter. In 53, 2 to 3, let me read that to you again. It says, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was vile and rejected by men, despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah saying, look, your Savior is not coming in the way in which you think he will come. The king doesn't show up on the white stallion like you think he will. He comes up on this donkey's colt. He comes up in obscurity. He comes up in humility. Yet all the while we see the nature of our king in this text as being one of worthy of praise and exaltation. Yet he comes in humility and again degradation. He came suffering, it says there in verse 3. He came to suffer. He was acquainted with grief, right? He, he became suffering. He endured pain and hunger in this fallen world like all of us do. He came to be mocked by men because all of us endure that at some point in our lives. He understands our suffering. He is mocked by sinners, even at the cross, when he's shedding his blood for those people around him to look to him for hope and help. He's actually being mocked. By the criminals on both sides, up to a point when God opens the eyes of one and brings him into paradise on that very day. Isaiah says he's a man who was full of sorrow. He was broken hearted. Why was Jesus broken hearted? Why did, why did Jesus cry at Lazarus's tomb? Well, he knew he was going to raise him from the dead, so that obviously wasn't it. I think he cried for multiple reasons. To sympathize with the people around who were suffering but also because the unbelief that was present, even though he had said, I'm going to raise him up. That's why I waited to come until he was dead. He's weeping. He's a man who is sorrowful, a broken heart over man's sinful condition. Why is he broken hearted over us? We deserve his wrath. Why did he endure humiliation, 
degradation, heartache, pain. Why? Because of God's great love for us. I don't know why he saved me except to bring himself glory. And why he saved us the way he did gives him the most glory. He came suffering. He came suffering because that was a part of his calling as our sympathetic high priest. He came to stand in our place. But we need to understand something about this. His suffering in life being mocked by friends and relatives throughout his life, his pain of sorrow and things that he went through in life did not even compare to the suffering that he was about to endure that Isaiah is prophesying about here. It doesn't even compare to the suffering he's going to endure at the cross as he is hung in our place under God the Father's holy wrath against our sins, taking our penalty. Here in Isaiah, he's saying, look, the message that you need to get across, you need to understand Israel, the people of God. On the cross, Jesus would be stricken, he would be afflicted, he would be wounded, and he would be crushed by his Father for your sins, for your transgressions. Saints, we can become so familiar with the gospel, we don't feel the weight of this gospel. And Isaiah is laying the weight on us so that when we are under it, we have to look up and see Christ alone can bear this. Christ alone has accomplished this great work for us. Isaiah is making it very clear that this suffering servant would be afflicted and stricken and wounded and crushed because of our sins by the will of the Father. And what's amazing to me as we read Isaiah, as you read through this whole book, but especially here, is we we understand that even though Jesus had lived this righteous and obedient life in every aspect to God's law, completely obedient, he alone in the Bible, he alone in the world deserved to be praised, not suffer humiliation. He alone is to be exalted. He alone is to be worthy of all honor. But what does he do? He chooses to come here for us, those who are without honor, those who deserve God's wrath. He chose in love to come and suffer in our stead for our sake, to bring us to God as a prize that he has brought through his work. He came for the sake of all those who would believe and trust in him. Isaiah says this is a startling message, and I would say it's an astounding good news message for all of us today, Christian or not. Look, and you may be coming to church here often, repeatedly, but you may still be lost in your sins because you haven't looked to Christ for who he is and what he's done for you. And today is the day that you need to look to Jesus, the suffering servant who came in your stead to receive what you and I deserved. This is astounding that the God of the universe would condescend and come to us personally and be treated the way we deserve to be treated in life and at death to give us life through his death. So so I hope just at the outset here, I hope that you are freshly amazed by Isaiah's glorious revelation. I think we ought to be amazed because we know from The New Testament, that God, who is rich in mercy, has sent his beloved son to rescue us and and be rejected because of us so that we will never be rejected by God himself. Jesus was rejected so that we could be eternally forgiven and accepted and loved by God the Father. 
Saints, that is absolutely astonishing. Whatever your present trials, whatever your present woes, whatever your struggles are today as a Christian, rejoice. It's not eternal. You have an eternal hope because the Father will never reject those that the Son has died for. Every single person that Jesus died for will be raised up on the last day. And they will be with him for eternity because of his great suffering and his great atoning work at the cross and his resurrection. Now let's go back to Isaiah. <laughs> this is truly a message that's too good not to be true. Think about it. God the Son, God the Son himself, steps out of heaven's glory, comes to this earth to rescue sinners. And how does he do it? In the most astounding way possible. He takes our place. Becomes our substitute. Listen, this vicarious act of Jesus atoning for us, substituting his life on our behalf, is, is beyond human capability of, of really wrapping your mind and heart around in one lifetime. That's why God gives us eternity, okay? You want to know why you go to heaven? So you can know more about what he's done for you on earth. That's it. And praise him from beginning to end. Here back in Isaiah, though, I think Isaiah is making it clear to us that we should really rejoice. And I think that when you understand what Jesus has done for you as a Christian, you should, you should also be feeling something else in your heart right now. Joyful repentance. You want to know why you should repent of your sins and walk in sanctification, walk in holiness? Because of this. This is the thing that should motivate you. Look what Jesus did. Look what the Father Willed to happen through his son. What is your response? If you're a Christian, it should be joyful repentance. It should be joyful repentance. And it should be because, secondly, Isaiah's prophetic message here goes on to reveal the good news of God, the Father's unequaled compassion for sinners like us. I, I never, ever like to hear anybody try to pit Jesus against the Father, the, the Son against the Father. The, Jesus is so loving and the Father is so full of wrath and anger in the Old Testament. You know, No, it's the same God. His nature doesn't change. Our sins deserve the wrath of God. But it was the Father's will to send his Son and to crush him. It was God who acted on our behalf. And his Son came willingly. Look at verses 4 to nine. This is unequaled compassion. There's nothing like this in all the world, never will be again. Surely, speaking of Jesus, he has borne that is carried away. Okay, this is speaking of expiation here. He's carried away our sorrows, our borne our grief, carried away our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. In other words, we, we saw that happening to him. We, we've heard about that happening to him. We think, yes, he must have done something wrong. He probably deserved this. He, he was not the one that God would send. That's what they're thinking. He's under God's wrath. Obviously, he must not be the Messiah. That's what the Jews were thinking. But he goes on to say here, but he, speaking of Jesus, he was wounded for our transgressions, our rebellion against God's law. He was dakah, crushed for our iniquities, our sin guilt. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us shalom, peace. And with his stripes, we are 
healed. He's speaking of healing in the totality of its, of its all-encompassing truth, the restoration of the broken person in eternity. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him imputed, imputed the iniquity, our sin guilt of all of us, he says, on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. That is cut off, cut off. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked with a rich man in his death, although he had done, notice this, he had done no violence. He's innocent. And there was no deceit in his mouth. He was innocent, yet he suffered these things. Verse 4a says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. John 3.16 tells us that it was the father who loved the world so much that he sent forth his son in the fullness of time, Galatians says, to become our savior substitute. He was bearing these things on behalf of his calling as our savior for us, on behalf of the father. He sent him to do this. And when we see at the, at the compiling of verses 4 to 9, we see he's receiving these things and men are judging that he is worthy of this kind of judgment. He must have done something wrong. And yet he ends in verse 9 with he's innocent. He's innocent. So, so how, in your mind, think about this, how or, or why? Why would such needy sinners as who would have read this originally and us today, why would they respond to God's great mercy with, with question in their mind? Why would they question the mercy of God in sending this, this suffering servant to be their substitute? Why, why do people question that? Well, it, it's utterly astounding, right? It, it doesn't make sense to us. This doesn't, this doesn't add up. Why would God send a perfectly innocent man to be punished and take that, that punishment that we deserved when we are the ones who have sinned against him? And how could he possibly save us? I mean, listen, we probably could do a better job of saving ourselves. I mean, I'll try to continue on the work of sanctifying myself apart from him by my religious activities. That's what people were thinking at the time of Isaiah. Most of Israel at this time was, was blinded by their self-righteousness and spiritually dead hearts. They couldn't see God's mercy in this prophecy. They couldn't see God, God's mercy in sending them a substitute. And the reason was is because they couldn't imagine they needed one. They thought they were good enough, their good deeds, their religious works. They thought those things were sufficient to please God. And listen, if you're here today and you think just saying Jesus or praying a prayer and sticking Jesus' name at the end, but you never live for him, honor him, serve him, seek him, you think that saves you or brings favor between you and God, you're wrong. It'll damn you. Only Jesus can mediate between you and the Father. Only he could do this. You would be like them saying, he deserves these things. I can do better. That's how we all sounded, by the way, in case you don't remember. We all sounded that way before we came to faith in Christ. 
before God opened our eyes to see his glory. We all sounded much like those there in Isaiah 53. We responded to God's mercy in much the same way. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. We had self-righteous thoughts that actually cultivated this sort of, I can do it alone. I can make it on my own. I don't need the church, which, by the way, Jesus died for. Jesus loves. Jesus ordains. Jesus says, this is what you're supposed to be a part of. I don't need the church. I don't need the word. I can just, me and God, you know, me and God, me and my Bible out there in the woods, you know. No, no, you need, you need God, according to his word, to bring you to understanding that you can't do anything to bring yourself into a right relationship with him apart from trusting in Christ. And so when we read this chapter and you think about the Jews having read this or heard this, and the way they were responding to the revelation of the suffering Savior that God would send. And you think, how could they be so lame? How could they be so thick-headed? How could the prophecies that we see in the Old Testament that were made manifest at the time of Jesus in his own life, how could the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes and, and the Sadducees, how could they not see who he is? How could they stand at Golgotha and cry, crucify him? How could they do that? After all that he has revealed to them in his word. You and I did that before he opened our eyes to see the glorious work of his son. Saints, we were there in Isaiah 53. We were at the cross, at Golgotha, crying out, crucify him before we came to faith in Christ before God granted us the ability to do that. By the way, you can't save yourself through anything that you think you've said to God. God has to grant you repentance and faith to believe. It's a miracle of unequaled mercy to sinners. We were dead in our sins. We were blinded by our own self-righteousness. We couldn't see Jesus's unequaled beauty We couldn't see our great need for God's mercy. We couldn't see these things apart from God opening our eyes sovereignly. All-powerful God working to bring the dead heart to life. To open our eyes to see the unequaled mercy that is on display in the Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnation, his humiliation, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. Go with me to Ephesians 2 for just a moment. I think Ephesians 2 ties to Isaiah 53 very well in this way because it shows us the heart of those who were not believing the report of Isaiah, the heart of those who now don't believe the gospel and submit to Jesus as Lord, yet give lip service to it. And what God is going to do and what God has done to change that. Verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Simple, simple exegesis of verse 2 is you were following Satan. You were dominated by his, his mind, his world, his views. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. Do what we want. Enjoy life to its utmost. Get what we can out of it. And the mind were were darkened, it's going to say here. And, And they were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, it's enough right there. But God, notice this unequaled mercy here and compassion. 
being rich or abounding in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. We were vile. We were the ones who were filthy. We are the ones who deserved God's wrath. Even when we were like that, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What a glorious thing that's happened here. I mean, he's opened our eyes to see his unequaled mercy in Christ. And if you're a Christian today, rejoice in that. Don't ever take it for granted. He's not giving you what you deserve. He gave it to Jesus in your stead. All he has for you is blessing and grace. He's going to continually pour upon you because of Christ. When God opens your eyes to see that, you will be amazed. If you're not a believer today, let me tell you something. When you see that, when God does this work, he will make you amazed. And there won't be any any desire to say, well, you know, maybe I'll just go my way or do things my way anymore. Or I'll, I'll avoid doing the things that maybe the church says we ought to do. You know, worship, pray, fellowship. No, your whole world will change. He takes away that heart of stone. He gives you the heart of Christ. And you want what honors Christ. He opens your eyes to see the truth and to see Jesus clearly in it. And when you do that, here's what you'll see first off. You're going to see that it was your sins that hung Jesus on the cross. It was your sins that hung Jesus on the cross. But it was God's love that sent him there on your behalf. The Father sent the Son to be the propitiation of the world. He sent him to save us, to atone for us. That's how God expresses his unequaled compassion to sinners like us. There's no other way he could do this. He couldn't do it any other way because God's law and his very nature and our sins demand justice. Our sins demand God's holy justice for the wages of sin is death, Romans tells us. Yet what's he do? In, in mercy and grace, God, God provides something for us that we cannot obtain on our own. He provides a perfect substitute. And what's that perfect substitute do? Well, he becomes a curse for us. What? Yes. He, he comes into the world to pay our sin debt. Listen, saints, that's not fair. Praise the Lord. It is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. God is gracious. God is merciful to us in sending forth this perfect substitute to become a curse for us. Isaiah should, should now amaze you when you read this, okay? Look at verse 5 there of Isaiah 53, 5. He, he's describing the unequal compassion of God's in action here in verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us shalom. And his stripes, with his stripes, he says, we are healed. We are completely redeemed. Listen to what he's saying. He's telling us, he's telling us that, that God in mercy, right? He's telling us God in mercy. Here's, here's how God did this. God sent his son to take our place out of his great mercy for us. And what does he do with his son? Well, we'll see as we go through this. Isaiah is prophesying about the cross here at this point. He's going to tell us that Jesus will be crushed to death for our sins so that we would never have to face God's righteous wrath against our sins. That's what he's telling us here. This is good news. This is the, this is the, the gospel. Think about it this way. On the cross, Jesus bore all your yet unborn sins. 
Jesus didn't die for sins in general. No, he died specifically for all his people's specific sins against God. In three hours on the cross, Jesus is treated as the vilest criminal, pedophile, rapist you could ever imagine. For all those he had saved, yet he was without sin, fully righteous, taking our place. Well, that takes away any kind of self-condemnation or even condemnation of others, doesn't it? Jesus was condemned in our stead. We all deserve God's wrath. But instead, Jesus came willingly to be pierced and crushed to death because of our sins. Think about this. Every sin you've ever committed deserves this, God's wrath. Why? It deserves eternal wrath in hell. Why? Because you're sinning against an eternal, holy God. Your rebellion against God's law deserves wrath. Your deceitful heart deserves God's wrath. Your perverted thoughts deserve God's wrath. Your lies, your little white lies, they deserve God's wrath. Your bitterness, hatred toward other people, people you won't forgive, deserves God's wrath. Your selfishness, wanting things for yourself all the time, your way, your rights, your privileges, deserves God's wrath. You don't deserve anything but God's wrath. That's what we all deserve as sinners. And listen, what we need to understand is, When the Bible speaks about Jesus being marred, being bruised for our iniquities, that's what it's talking about. He was marred by these things. He was crushed by these things that we have done against a holy God as he stood in our place. The sinless son of God is receiving your penalty at the cross so that he could set you free from that penalty. And in doing so, bring you into the presence of God without shame. That is gloriously good news. I think of it this way. I read in the book of Revelation where John says that he sees a lamb as if slain yet standing. You remember that? He sees a lamb as if slain yet standing at this throne. Think of it this way. The only one in heaven who will be marked by the result of sin will be Jesus. Not you. He'll bear the marks of our sin for eternity in his flesh. The God-man, Jesus Christ. As a constant and eternal reminder of why we're there and how we got there he took our place he was eternally scarred by god the father so that we could be eternally healed by the father because of his great and unequaled mercy and grace in christ that's what verse six is saying there all we like sheep we had gone astray he says we have turned every one to his own way and the lord laid on him the iniquity the sin guilt of us all right All of us was laid on him. He's saying, look, God is God, the father who interceded here for you. Apart from God's sovereign intervention, saints, you would be lost. You can't save yourself. You can't sanctify yourself either. It's the Holy Spirit's work through the word. It's all of grace. He interceded for us. And without his intercession and his intervention, we would all still be eternally lost and worthy of eternal wrath. But what's he do? He sent forth his son. He sent his son to rescue dirty, smelly, vile sheep. When he did that, he revealed to us mercy beyond comparison. And how does he do it? Well, he transferred that filth of that sheep to the righteous one, his son. He transferred our guilt to his son at the cross 
And there, in light of our sins, the Father then crushed his Son because of us. The sinless one was crushed because our sins were credited to his account. Saints, understand this is why we can rejoice over the gospel every Sunday, every day. Isaiah is telling us that, look, it's the, it's the Father's love that is at work here. The Father was seeking out the spiritually dead sheep around you, right? He's seeking them out, and he's breathing eternal life into them through the sacrifice of his Son. And this is, this is something I, I think just as a word picture to help you sort of think about this. When the Bible speaks of him in a moment here being crushed, here's what's happening in the crushing of Jesus, the sinless one, on your behalf. The life you now have as a Christian, this eternal life, this life that's full of abundance, this life that you have is a gift from God the Father. It, it, this life is, is God the Father breathing life into us through the life he crushed out of Jesus. That's what this is. That means God's unequaled compassion toward us grants us really what we would call a, a unequaled exchange, right? The righteous for the unrighteous, making us righteous in him. That's what Paul's writing about in 2 Corinthians. Look there with me. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. This is the great exchange that, that took place in the redemption of sinners, the, the lost sheep that God would call in through the work of his son and breathe life into them by crushing it out of Jesus. Look what it says. For our sake, right? For our sake, God, the father, made God, the son, him to be sin who knew no sin. He was sinless. Why did he do it? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You can't clean your life up. You can't make yourself more pleasing to God by anything you do. And that means that whatever you do at this point, you're not going to be more pleasing to God. He's already as pleased as he will be in Christ. But you have been credited this gift of righteousness. It's credited to your account as if you had lived the perfect life that Jesus did. And he is, he is doing that by first sending his son, the innocent one, into the world to receive the penalty we deserved. That's, again, just, that's too good not to be true. He's taking our place. Listen, I would die likely for anybody in this room, okay? There might be an exception or two. Um, but I would certainly die for my children or for my wife, easily. But I wouldn't die for someone who murdered my wife. But God sent forth his son to do just that for us. He sent forth his son to die for murderers at heart. The righteous one exchanged his righteous life for ours, crediting it to our account by taking the penalty of our sins and our sins upon him at the cross. Go back to Isaiah 53, 7. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was cut off, taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Isaiah says, Jesus was taken away. Why was he taken away? Well, like a sheep to the slaughter. Jesus is taken away to be slaughtered. And why is he slaughtered? So that his sheep will be spared. That's why he's slaughtered. So you and I would be spared. We deserve to be slaughtered by a holy God for our sins against him. But instead he slaughters his son. 
Listen, Christianity is a bloody religion. It's a bloody religion. It's a bloody religion because you, as the creation of God, have sinned, and your sins deserve God's penalty, which is death, that Jesus took it in our place. What's amazing in this section here, when you read about him going like a lamb to the slaughter, silent, he's the only human who ever walked this earth who could have actually stood against his accusers and pled innocence. And he could have turned right around in that same court of law, if you will, and demanded that they pay for their own sin debt because they were all guilty. But that's not what he does. He could have done that. He could have avoided the cross in that regard. But he couldn't do that. But that's why he came. So what's he do? He opened not his mouth. He was silent. Now, I think he was silent at that point for a very specific reason. few reasons, actually. I think he was silent here so that his sheep can shout now. And now we can shout about God's saving grace that's been given to us in Christ. And we can sing about that now and forever. So that's why Jesus is silent. That's partly why Jesus is silent here. He didn't plead his own case. He willingly laid down his life for the sake of his sheep so that we could now shout because we cannot plead innocence. But the innocent one pled silence to receive our penalty in our place. Verse 9 says he goes on to be silent, right? And he's also obviously guiltless. He's guiltless. He had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Again, just reiterating it. He is innocent. If you don't see that by now, you're blind and you're in your sins. You need to repent and believe upon Christ. He is innocent. He is innocent, yet he is suffering and bearing the guilt as our substitute in our place. And he's doing it willingly. He's not being made to do it by the Father. And why is he doing this? He's he's doing this to live the righteous life that we were commanded to live. He's living that life in our place. He's identifying with us in all this. He was doing this innocently. He was going to be judged because of our sins through this. But he is identifying with us. He's going to pay our penalty that we deserve. We deserve it because if you read Romans 3, you understand that our feet are swift to shed blood. And we have deceit in our mouth. But not Jesus. Yet he dies in our place. As if he had done those things that we've done. And what's he doing? He's again, he's identifying with us in every possible way. Look how far he identifies with us in his incarnation and humiliation. He identifies with us all the way to the point of dying. <laughs> the sinless son of God dies. The wages of sin is death. How could he die? Well, he laid his life down willingly. And how did he do it? He laid it down as a sacrifice. And what happens to him? He's treated as if he's us. He's treated, he's murdered like as if he is a lawbreaker. Because that's what we are. And he goes to the grave. He's buried. He's condemned in our place. But, as we'll see next week, the grave was only a temporary dwelling place for his body. The grave cannot hold the sinless one. The wages of sin had no power over him whatsoever. And in verses 10 to 12, we see this. 
Here, Isaiah's good news message reveals to us God the Father's unquestionable satisfaction through the revelation of Jesus' resurrection. Look with me there. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. The spoil, okay? And he will divide the spoil with the strong. Because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is, this is a testimony to God's, to God's unquestionable satisfaction in what Jesus came to do and accomplished at the cross and through the resurrection. Here Isaiah is saying that only, only Christ's willful and perfect sacrifice could undeniably satisfy God's requirements. Only Christ could do that. It was Christ who was crushed by the law and justice of God, but not for his sins, but for ours, for our offenses. And he willfully laid down his life under the weight of our sins, which is humbling beyond belief. 53.10 confirms that. It says, He was crushed by the will of the Father. Why? Well, he was taking our place. Now, I think that we would all understand that crushing is a obviously miserable way to die. I think about, you know, the time of uh, 9-11, right? Seeing all those people buried under those stones and the agony of people pulling dead bodies out and seeing the, the death and destruction that crushing produces. That can't even be compared to what's happening here. But it is an agonizing way to die. And that's how the Bible describes Jesus' death. The Hebrew word here again is dakah. Now, what's interesting is that word describes what it looks like when people are trampled to death by wild animals. Trampled to death by wild animals. What, what wild animals trampled the Son of God to death? Isaiah is revealing that to us. He's telling us Jesus would be trampled to death by all the filthy feet of those who, by God's grace, would then trust in him, their suffering Savior. The will of the Father to crush him, it says. Saints, that, that should fill you with great humility right now, if you're a believer, if you're truly a believer. And it should fill you with great joy as well. It should make you just amazed once again at the good news of the gospel. Jesus took on flesh to become our sin offering, our guilt offering, an appeasing sacrifice to God. He took on flesh to, to grant us both what we don't deserve and what we cannot earn, right? And he, he, took, he took our curse in exchange. He gave us his righteousness. Listen, if that doesn't sanctify your attitude, your heart, and your actions, nothing ever will. Do not tell me that you believe Jesus is Lord and worthy of praise and honor if you're going to go on living in sin and dishonoring him without repentance. That's the true confession of an unconverted false believer. A hypocrite. 
Don't try to redefine your sins because of the culture, because the culture was different then and it's different now. No, submit to God's revealed word and honor the one who was crushed for your sins and repent of those actions. We all fall short, but the true believer will not remain in sin without repentance. If there is no repentance of your sins, there is no assurance that you are saved from your sins and the wrath of God. But those who were saved by God's grace and the work of Christ, they have much to rejoice in today. 53.11 goes on to tell us why. It says that God the Father was satisfied, fully satisfied with Christ's willful sacrifice here. Verse 11, again, it says, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And then he goes on toward the end here. It says, he'll make many to be accounted righteous. Isaiah is telling us here in verse 11 that Christ's willing sacrifice is, is the only thing that can satisfy God's justice against our sins. The justice against our sins is, is death, eternal damnation, the penalty that's deserving of us. But here, 700 years before Christ went to the cross and 700 years now as we look into the future... We know this. We know that Jesus fully satisfied the Father on our behalf if we are believers. We know this. This is what happened 700 years after Isaiah wrote this. God the Father would pour out his full cup of wrath on his Son, who is our substitute. And he would do that at the cross. And there at the cross, Jesus would willingly drink the full cup of God's wrath in our place so he would satisfy God's wrath against us. I'm I'm amazed when I read this and I think about this. I mean, Isaiah is saying, look, this is what's going to happen. And and this is what we know that did happen. Go with me to John. Go with me to John. John 19. In John 19, we see this happening. We see it taking place, taking shape, if you will. The, the, the fruition of this prophecy is here before us. John 19, verse 28. Listen to this. This is the full cup of God's wrath being poured out on Jesus. He's at the cross. He's on the cross, suffering under our sins for our pla- in our place. And what's, what's happening here? Verse 28, it says this. After this, Jesus, knowing that... All was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A full or jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. Church, I truly believe that one of the reasons that John tells us about this event at the cross, that Jesus is thirsty there at that point, I think one of the main reasons he tells us that is so that we can understand the great compassion and the great satisfaction of what he was doing on our behalf and what he would accomplish in our place. John's telling us that Jesus wants his thirst satisfied here And here's why I think that's the case. He wants his thirst satisfied so that he can loudly and vicariously and victoriously declare that his atoning work is complete. It is finished. To tell us, I. 
He is announcing to the world, to us, for all eternity, that all his people will be justified solely based on his finished work alone. That is good news. Jesus, our sinless Savior, paid our sin debt in full as our sin bearer, and he did so willingly under the oversight and direction of God the Father's great mercy. It was the good news here that I think Isaiah was wanting us to see, wanted Israel to see at the time he wrote it. And the good news, listen, saints, this is for us for next week, but I'm going to get on it a little bit now. The good news of this cross that Jesus was hanging upon doesn't remain there with him on the cross. It leads us to what we're going to talk about next Sunday. The good news of the cross goes into a tomb, and three days later, it springs up with resurrection power. Why does it spring up? It springs up to reveal most clearly, above all other revelations, most clearly that Jesus' victory over sin, Satan, and death itself has been accomplished. It is finished. His very resurrection testifies to God's full satisfaction, and it is the substance of our justification before a holy and righteous God. We are saved by the work of Christ alone. In 53.12, in 53.12, we see this testified to here in the way in which God speaks through this revelation of Isaiah about the work of Christ, his son. Therefore, he says, God says, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. The spoil means a, a, the, the prized victory. Because he, here's why he's going to receive this, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he, Jesus, bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Here Isaiah is simply telling us this, that the victorious work that Christ accomplished here was done, first of all, for the eternal praise of God. So we would see his nature, see his Love, his mercy, his grace in Christ. But it's also done for our sake. Listen, (laughs) at the end of our life, we have much more to gain than we could ever gain in life. We have this promised blessing. We have the blessing that Christ's victory is ours. His spoils belong to us now because of what he's accomplished. He gets it all. And we get it all in him. Christ is going to share the spoils of his victory with us. His victory over sin and over death. He's going to share those with all his people for all eternity. But we need to understand one thing this morning before I conclude. That promised blessing is only guaranteed by one thing. It's only guaranteed by God's grace through faith in Jesus' righteous life, his wrath-appeasing death, and his victorious resurrection. So that means that Only those who trust in that and who he is and what he's done, only those who trust in him and repent of their sins will be accepted in God's sight for eternity and receive that blessing of the spoils of Christ. That's that way because only Jesus deserves to be praised. Only Jesus could have satisfied God's righteous requirements on our behalf. We could never do that. In 10 million lifetimes, we could never do that. We would always fall short of the glory of God, but not Jesus. And in his resurrection from the dead, he testifies to that, and he assures us that that's why we are accepted in heaven. 
We're accepted by God the Father because of what Christ has done. We are justified, declared righteous because of Jesus alone. He took our place. So again, Isaiah's message here reminds us that it's too good not to be true. It's God's good news. Here's my last statement and question. Isaiah started off with, who has believed our report? And I want to ask you that today. Have you believed this report? Have you believed this good news message that Isaiah brings to us? If you haven't believed, if you haven't trusted in this fully, I pray that you will. I pray that you'll look to this lamb that was slain on your behalf and that through faith in him alone, you'll be granted eternal life. I hope that's your desire today. I hope that as you look in Isaiah 53 now and forever, you will always see what God has done for sinners like us in this. That if you are yet to bow the knee to Jesus as your Lord, not just a Savior, you don't just get a partial package, it's the whole man. If you have not looked to him as your Lord and Savior, today is the day of salvation. You need to repent because there's a great reward to be granted to you in Christ. Look to him and live today. If you would, bow with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious good news from Genesis to Revelation that you've given us about Jesus. We pray that every one of us, saved or unsaved today, would hear this message and be utterly astounded and moved to repentance and to joy in the satisfying work of your Son on our behalf. We pray that we would live differently, that we would honor you practically, that we would serve you continually as we leave this place and we seek to make much of Jesus. And I pray all that for your praise, Jesus. Amen.